It is a pleasure to be with you as we're continuing in this uh, strange book, the book of Jonah, a short story that we find in the Old Testament, and one that most of us only know one detail about. It's the detail that we're going to be talking about this morning, the fact that Jonah, this prophet, was swallowed by a fish or a whale or some other large sea creature. And we're going to be talking uh, specifically about what is going on in this very strange chapter and actually how it is incredibly pertinent and relevant for us today. But first, I'd like us to begin in a word of prayer. Would you please bow your heads? Oh, Lord God, we do indeed uh, call out to you. And we give you thanks that you respond by giving us your word ways in which we meet you, your word which is there to comfort and to guide us. And so we ask, Lord, that as we come before that word this morning, that you would indeed give us open hearts and minds to receive it. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I remember the first time I saw the movie Jaws. And it was probably, uh, I was probably too young to be watching that movie. And it's probably a question I need to talk with my parents a little bit about at some point. What were you thinking when you let me watch that film? Because I don't know about you, but you know, Jaws, that, that movie about this great white shark that, that kind of causes terror in this beachside town is one that, that seemed to have a lasting effect on many people when it first came out. It, it, it kind of uh, threatened and warned that, that you'll never go in the water again. And uh, me growing up in a family that loved to go to the beach in the summer, that was not very helpful, okay? Because I remember after I watched Jaws, like, I would stand on the edge of the water, and, and I would have these two conflicting emotions. There was a part of me that just wanted to dive right in and to, to get out there among the waves and the surf and to start uh, body surfing and just enjoying my time in the water. But then there's this other part of me that anytime anything touched my feet, I lost my mind and, was, and ran screaming out of the ocean. And one of the things that I think is, is so fascinating, though, about the ocean is whether you're a little kid or, or you're an adult, when you look at the sea, there's, I feel like whether you've seen Jaws or not, there's still that sense of awe and wonder, but also this sense of terror and foreboding because the ocean is massive. It's one of the largest things anyone will ever encounter. Beautiful, yes. Fun to swim in, absolutely. But also deep and dark and mysterious. It's one of those things that when we look at it, it reminds us that we live in a world where we are constantly confronted with our limits. We live in a world that is full of mystery and unpredictability. Ocean, I think, in some ways is a good reminder to us from God of just how small we truly are. And the reason I wanted to begin here, you know, reflecting on uh, the ocean and its depths and its vastness is because that's actually where we find ourselves now in the book of Jonah. Jonah is the story of a prophet who rebels. A renegade prophet, a man who uh, claims to know God's will and God's ways, a man who claims to hear from the Lord. And what we find at the beginning of the book of Jonah is that, uh, in many ways, Jonah is a bad prophet. He's a false prophet. And, and, but suddenly, at the start of the book, something unexpected happens to Jonah. He actually hears a word from the Lord. Words instructing him to go to the city of Nineveh and to prophesy against all of its wickedness. 
And yet Jonah, upon receiving that message, instead of obediently going in response to finally getting a word from God, runs in the other direction. He boards a ship to Tarshish, which scholars have tried so hard to figure out where Tarshish is. I mean, it could be as close as Greece and as far away as Spain. The point being, Jonah has booked it in the other direction, trying to escape from God. And what we learn in chapter 1 is that you can't run from the God who made the earth and the sea. And so that chapter ends with Jonah basically telling the sailors of the ship to throw him in the water because Jonah would rather die than be obedient to God. What we find in chapter 1 of Jonah is that Jonah is a man of God who is thoroughly unacquainted with grace. A man of God who is thoroughly unacquainted with with grace. What we see surprisingly at the end of that chapter is that it's the pagan sailors who turn to God in repentance and it's Jonah who is still on the run. And so we come to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, this very strange chapter, we actually learn a little something about grace. We're actually going to learn three things about grace in a very unexpected place. First, we're going to learn where grace is found. Second, we're going to learn what it is. And third, we're going to learn how we receive it. Because that's really what Jonah chapter 2 is all about. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Jonah 2 with me. And actually, Jonah 2 begins at the end of chapter 1. One of the things that I find interesting is that in many uh, English Bibles, uh, chapter 1, verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. But what's really interesting is if you actually read the book of Jonah in the Hebrew Bible, chapter 1, verse 17 is actually chapter 2, verse 1. Which I think makes a lot more sense, actually. Chapter 2 is a chapter that is bookended by the fish. It starts with the fish swallowing Jonah up. It ends with the fish spitting Jonah out. And sandwiched right there in between is this very surprising prayer. It's that prayer that I want to look at. But before we do, uh, just kind of a a note. Many people have a hard time with Jonah too uh, because they find it so incredible. Uh, They highlight the fact that they're like, really, a fish came and swallowed him and he was in the belly alive for three days and three nights? There's no way that could possibly happen. And I actually hear that even among Christians. Some Christians will read this chapter and they'll say, well, this must be a metaphor for what it was like Jonah being tossed to and fro about the waves because there's no way, no way that a fish could swallow Jonah and he'd be alive for three days and three nights. Or we try to find other ways around it. We say, well, maybe it wasn't a fish, maybe it was a whale. And then people try to start arguing arguing about which whale species were actually present in the Mediterranean Sea and which one it could have been and how physically this could have taken place and stuff like that. I find all of these discussions hysterical, and here's why. If you have a hard time with God being able to keep a man alive for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, I have news for you. We believe in a lot crazier things than that as Christians, okay? We believe in some really nuts stuff. Like the fact that God who is eternal, has no beginning and no end, is just there and speaks all of the universe into creation. Uh, Like the fact that God could take an entire slave people, over a million, and walk them through the Red Sea on dry ground. 
Uh, the fact that God could actually become a human being, enter into this world, live among us, teach us, die for us, and rise again to new life after being in a tomb actually dead for three days. My point is simply this. If we're getting hung up about this fish thing, we have to look at some other parts of our Bible first. Because when we have a God who can create and sustain everything, we have a God who can keep this dude alive in a pretty smelly space for about three days. Okay, so let me just address that right off the bat. We do believe that this happened. Because we believe that God is capable of anything. <laughs> that he's able to preserve his purposes. And what we see in this song from Jonah is that God has a purpose for this little trip in the belly of a fish. Because Jonah gets swallowed by this thing, and we find something really surprising. that You know, he's in the belly of the fish three days, three nights, and then it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now I can promise you it probably didn't sound as nice as Bill's singing earlier. And yet... This poem, this prayer, is a profound prayer because it actually teaches us a little something about grace. The first thing that we have to notice about this prayer is some of the things that the Jonah says as he's in the belly of the fish. He says that out of the belly of Sheol I cried. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows, they passed over me. I said, I am driven from your sight. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars are closed upon me forever. Jonah sees in his predicament a foretaste of our ultimate destination apart from God. He uses this word Sheol. And this is a word that, comes, that crops up over and over again throughout the Old Testament. What is Sheol? Sheol was the place of the dead. Sheol was a place of darkness, a place of dust and decay, a place in which we are forsaken by God. Sheol was often associated with the deep and the dark places of the world, whether it was deep, dark caves or the deep, dark ocean. And Jonah here in the belly of the fish feels like that is where he has ended up, in the land of the dead with absolutely no hope. And the reason why he calls out, and the reason why I think that this passage is in here, and why Jonah goes there is because what he is finally seeing is a foretaste of what life with God really is like. You see, he's been running from God. He's been trying to get away from God's presence, and God actually surprisingly in his mercy gives him a taste of what that would actually be like. He says, you've been running from me your entire life. But I don't think you know where that will ultimately end up. And so God graciously actually gives Jonah a foretaste of what that would be. And it forces us to ask a question. And the question is simply this. What is our default destination? See, one of the things that our culture tells us these days is that our default destination is heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. 
Even dogs go to heaven. I know that because I watched the animated movie when I was a kid. All dogs go to heaven. That's just what happens, right? That's what we're told. And yet, one of the things that the Bible says is it says, on our own, apart from God, that's actually not our default destination. That's not where we're all destined to go. That actually, one of the things that Jesus himself said is he said that uh, broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow the path to eternal life. One of the things that he's highlighting, he says, our default destination apart from God is Sheol. Our default destination apart from God is hell. It's a place of darkness, dust, and decay, totally devoid of his presence. Totally cut off from a relationship with him. But what I love, and actually this is, this is, again, this is the surprising thing about this chapter, is that God gives Jonah a foretaste of that in order to rescue Jonah from that ultimate end. He says, I want you to get a foretaste of Sheol so that you know where I ultimately don't want you to end up. So that you understand the life that I'm calling you to leads you away from that place. Leads you into a place of life and light. You see, we have to wrestle with this question because of the fact that while we try to lie to ourselves and tell us, you know, where our default destination must be heaven, the reality is, is God gives us foretastes of Sheol all the time. That when we look around our world and we see war and violence, when we see selfishness and greed, when we encounter things like disease and pandemic, God is saying, this is what the world apart from me looks like. This is a foretaste of its ultimate end. And we can either see that as a curse, or we can turn to the God who says, that's what I want to rescue you from. We live in a broken world where we get foretastes of Sheol all the time where we get foretastes of the brokenness, but even in the midst of that, God is crying out and saying, turn back to me, because my desire is to save you from those things. I love how C.S. Lewis put it in his book, The Problem of Pain. Talking about the voice of God, he says, God whispers to us in our, con- uh, whispers to us in our conscience. He speaks to us in our struggles, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone for rousing a sleeping world. See, when we get foretastes of Sheol in this world, it is God shouting, return. It's God saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. And my desire is to save you from that, to rescue you from that. That when we get foretastes of the brokenness, we actually learn what John Newton meant in his second verse of Amazing Grace. When he says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." It is a gift from God that he gives us these foretastes in order to call us back to himself. And you see, that's the interesting thing. It's in his deepest and darkest moments that Jonah finally starts to get foretastes of grace. Because that leads us to truly understanding what grace is. Because notice the parallelism that takes place in Jonah's prayer and in his song. That right beside these passages about being abandoned, these passages about darkness and Sheol, Jonah also speaks about God's presence.
presence. He says, I called out to the Lord, and out of my distress, he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought my life up from the pit. O oh Lord my God, when, I, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. The voice of thanksgiving I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay, for salvation belongs to the Lord. See, Jonah suddenly realizes that although he's getting a foretaste of death, death hasn't claimed him yet. He realizes that even here in the darkness, God is sustaining him. That though he should be dead, yet he lives. And he realizes God is not done with me yet. You see, that's what grace is. It's getting what we don't deserve. It's getting God's presence, though what we deserve is darkness. It's getting God's love when what we deserve is judgment. And here in the belly of the fish, Jonah wakes up to that reality that God is still with him. God is still carrying him. God is still upholding him. God has not let him go. And that's what's so amazing about grace. That even in the midst of life's darkest seasons, even in those moments when by worldly standards we would look and say, where is God? We can say he is present here now. God sustains our life even in the midst of darkness and struggle. God does not let us go in the midst of storms. Though we feel we are in a place of death and dust, God says, yet even here I can bring life and I will not abandon you. Grace welcomes us in. Grace carries us through. Grace becomes that thing that reminds us that God loves us no matter what, even when we don't deserve it. Even when we find ourselves in prisons of our own making, even though we feel as though we are in a land whose bars are always closed, God says, I am the chain breaker. I am the one who opens gates and sets the captives free. I am the one who takes those who find themselves in a land of death and bring them back to life. One of the beautiful things about the scriptures is everywhere we see brokenness, God breaks in and brings new life. We see it from the beginning of scripture to its very, very end. That with Abraham and Sarah... An elderly couple who were barren and could have no children, God said, from you I will bring forth a child who will give birth to a nation, and from that nation all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That when God's people found themselves in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, with no hope, God opens a way for them through the sea that when God's people were face to face with their enemies being stared down by a giant named Goliath, God took this scrawny little runt named David and said, I will use you to rescue my people. And that even in the midst 
of his own trial and execution, Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And out of a tomb of darkness and death, he rose again to new life. God says, that's what my grace can do. My grace brings life in the midst of darkness. I don't abandon my people. And Jonah realizes that. That though he gets four tastes of Sheol, God ultimately delivers him by his grace. Which brings us to the last thing that we learn about grace, and that's how grace comes to us. I don't know if you noticed this, but twice in this story, in this uh, song, in this hymn, in this prayer, Jonah refers to the temple. He says, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. The question is, why? Why does Jonah, of all things, turn to the temple? And the answer is because it was in the temple that you found the mercy seat. At the very center of the temple where the altar of the Lord was, where the Ark of the Covenant was placed, was called the mercy seat. It was the place where when they uh, brought sacrifices, they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and know that they were forgiven. That is the gift that God promised to his people. He says, when your sins have separated you from me, you can bring your sacrifices here and you can receive mercy instead of judgment. You see, how grace comes to us is grace comes to us at a great cost, but not a cost that we have to pay. Rather, grace comes to us by means of a sacrifice, one who is willing to give up his life in order that we might be forgiven. Grace for us is free, but it doesn't come cheap. Because Jonah ultimately comes to the realization that salvation belongs to the Lord and that grace is costly and and it's going to require the Lord himself paying a price. You know, and I think about the mercy seat and I think about grace and I think about what what, what Jonah is suddenly experiencing and realizing in the belly of the fish. It actually makes me think of another song which I absolutely love. It's a song called Grace by U2. I don't know if you've heard this song. I love this song. It says, Grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame, removes the stain. It could be her name. Grace, it's the name for a girl, but it's also a thought that changed the world. That's what grace does. It covers the shame. It takes the blame, it removes the stain, a sacrifice laid down for us that we might live. This is why Jonah ultimately, his his prayer comes to its ultimate climax when he realizes that its salvation belongs to the Lord. It's going to take God laying down his life in order for me to receive grace. And the reality is, that's absolutely true. Because ultimately, one day, that's exactly what God does. He comes to Jerusalem to lay down his life. And in doing so, he gives us grace upon grace. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice who lays down his life that we might receive mercy. That's how grace comes to us. It comes to us through the one who is willing to pay it all in order to take the blame, in order to remove the stain and to cover over our shame. 
And the moment that Jonah realizes that, the moment he finally comes to see that with the Lord is grace and mercy and new life, is the moment he is set free. It's right after he proclaims those words, it says that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Which brings us to one last final point, more of an aside. Grace is messy. I I love the fact that it actually ends, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That's that's gross. Let's just be honest. But grace is messy. Once I read an author who said it this way, he said, God's grace meets us in messy places because messy places are all that there is. Grace is messy because what it gives is it gives forgiveness and new life to people who don't deserve it. Grace is messy because of the fact that it it encompasses and enfolds people who run from God, people who are rebellious toward God, people that we think shouldn't be recipients of it, and yet they get it. Grace is messy, but that's what's so beautiful about it. Grace is able to reach all the way down to hell in order to draw those who've been running from God, back into a relationship with him. Grace is able to break into the dark and messy places of our world in order to give us new life. Grace is able to reach those that the rest of the world would write off as lost and gone and forgotten. Grace upon grace. Grace is a messy but beautiful thing. For it speaks new life into broken places of death because it brings light in the midst of darkness, hope in the midst of despair, for salvation belongs to the Lord. And so uh, we as people who understand this message, looking out at our world and all the fear that we see, this pandemic which is kind of sweeping our country, which is causing people to remain in their homes, which is isolating us from one another, we can say even here, God is present. And part of us knowing that means being present to those who find themselves trapped in fear and isolated from one another. One of our encouragements to us as a church as we move into this next week and in the weeks to come, not knowing what each next day will bring, is to remember this truth. God's grace is enough. He never abandons his people. But he is here with us even in the midst of this darkness. And he will see us through to the coming dawn. That's the hope that we can bring to our community, to our neighbors, to our family and friends and even to those who seem to be running from him. God's grace is enough. So with that in mind, I'd like to close in a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that your grace is abundant and overwhelming, that it can take even a rebellious prophet like Jonah and call him back to yourself, that it pierces the darkness, that it breaks into places of death to bring new life. And Lord, that's what we need as a country right now. That's what we need as your people. Help us to be people who cling to that grace. Who cling to that grace in the midst of difficulties. And Lord, we pray that it's not only the grace that we cling to, but it can be grace that we give. That others might know the hope that we have in you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.